source of true delight, my unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my pleading the scripture reading is James 3, 13 through 18. Found on page 1012 in the Pew Bible. James 3, beginning at verse 13, let us hear the word of the Lord. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This earthly, unspiritual, demonic for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The word of the Lord. Let us see God's face in prayer. Oh Lord, I pray that you would oversee all that is done at this point, and Lord, that you would govern all these words. Lord, we pray that your spirit would bless us with an understanding of your word and, Lord, that we would grow in regard to your word, that we would be changed, that your word will lodge in our hearts and, and, Lord, that it will bear fruit in our lives. We rest in you, Lord. We would turn to you to seek you in this, Lord, to, to worship you and acknowledge your authority over us you're right as our creator and our redeemer, our, our final judge to speak to us. And Lord, the great privilege <clears throat> that we have, that you have spoken to us, <clears throat> and Lord, that you preserve this word to us, and that we have so much of the history of the church to help us understand this word. Oh Lord, you have come to us in the most amazing way to Get the word to us. And Lord, through these frail lips, this feeble voice, Lord, we pray that you would make, make known your magnificence so that we would conform our ways to you. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. <clears throat> uh, on a recent uh, trip this past weekend, I saw a sign that I really, uh, I really like. It's a favorite saying of mine in a sense right now. It, it says this, Coffee, so you can do stupid things faster with more energy. 
the point of it, of course, is that just by drinking coffee, just by having more energy doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to do anything better than you would have done otherwise. You just may do more of the stupid things that you would have done otherwise. You have more energy to do those uh, stupid things, and you can do them faster now uh, that you have coffee. And it points out the fact that what really needs to happen is that my heart needs to be fixed on the important things and wise things, uh, that I need to do the right things, not just stupid things faster with more energy. Uh, I need to have proper priorities and uh, follow through with what is right and proper and good and excellent in what I do, no matter what energy I bring to it, no matter how fast I do it, right? Well, it reminds me of this passage because in the Greek world, the word wisdom basically meant shrewdness and cunning. It meant being able to get ahead, being able to move up in the world, being able to accomplish a lot for yourself. And in fact, one of the words used here for meekness is in some lists of philosophers and ethicists, it's the first word of what you don't want to be. Meekness, meek. Above all, don't be meek. And so when James writes this, he is absolutely countercultural, calling us to meekness and associating that with wisdom. In fact, the reason he stresses so much the wisdom that's not from above, that is full of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, that that would mark so often that which would be called wisdom in the Greek world. It doesn't matter if there's selfish ambition. It doesn't matter if you trample on others. If you get ahead, more power to you. You're sharp, you're wise, you're cunning, you're shrewd. You outflanked others. You outdid them. You moved ahead of them, whatever you had to do in order for that to happen. And so, James points us in a completely different direction. And for our thinking, what is so astounding about this passage is that we tend to associate wisdom with knowledge. We tend to think if a person understands the Bible, we'll say, or understands truth, and even if a person is able to counsel me, say you come to me and I am give you uh, counsel from God's Word that helps you to live your life in a better way, that even that counsel is regarded as wisdom. While he knows a lot of the word and he's able to bring that word to bear in my situation, he has a lot of wisdom. Not necessarily so. It may be, and hopefully a person who has true wisdom and is living out wisdom can also counsel in wisdom. But even that, certainly not just the bare intellectual knowledge of God's word, and even to know that word so that you can teach others and counsel others is not what true wisdom is. So he asked this question to begin with, who is wise and understanding among you? Step forward, raise your hand. 
Who, who would claim to be wise and understanding? If so, here's how you show your wisdom. In goodness and humility. In goodness and humility. That's basically what he says. By his good conduct, let him show his works. In the meekness of wisdom. You could translate that perhaps as uh, the, in, in humble wisdom. <clears throat> The association of wisdom and humility is constant in the Word of God. And so, and we'll, we'll point that out in a little bit, but just right at the outset, it's not what you know, it's how you live. And particularly, wisdom is how you treat other people. Wisdom has to do with my regard for God and my regard for others. Wisdom is described in the same terms as we will see as the fruit of the Spirit in Paul or described in the same terms as the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. So while wisdom is connected with knowledge, wisdom comes in part from uh, knowing God's Word, yes, but it's the living out of that Word. It's the demonstration of a changed life that indicates the essence of wisdom. So apart from love, I'm a fool, according to Scripture. Apart from loving sacrifice and servanthood, I'm living a foolish, destructive life. It is not a life of wisdom. Wisdom has to do with goodness and humility. Then he gives the contrast. Now, I've said wisdom from above or not, okay? And this is the or not in verses 14 through 16. Wisdom not from above, as he says. Uh, This is verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. He doesn't literally say it's from below, but he does describe it in below terms with earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And he says, if you have this desire to get ahead, this jealousy. Uh, the word is zeal, but in, with the word bitter, it's obviously that it's a negative zeal, a zeal for self, a zeal for self-promotion, and selfish ambition. Don't boast and think that this is wisdom. Don't think that the wisdom of the world is true wisdom. This is a lie given to the truth. This is to deny the truth of true wisdom. A story is uh, told, a little parable of a king who is going to give uh, a, a, a mighty sum, uh, in fact, treasures that uh, could hardly be imagined. He was going to give them to this man who was known to be the most envious man in the kingdom. But the catch was there was going to be a second person And whatever he gave to the envious man, he could ask for anything. He was going to give double to the other guy. Well, this was really a difficulty for the envious man. Because is he thinking, gosh, I could have a million dollars. He'll have two million dollars. And literally couldn't be happy thinking about that. No matter how much he thought he could get, he would not be able to enjoy it. Because this guy's going to have twice as much. How can I look at what I have when he has twice as much? 
And so he thought and he thought, and he decided that he would ask for one of his eyes to be put out. Hmm, pretty slick. For an envious person, because that way you're better than this guy. You made sure that you were ahead and he was not ahead of you. Isn't that an amazing statement? And yet, even in ministry, it is true that we would rather somebody not have success in ministry, not bring people to Christ. Ministers can almost hear of the success of another minister and wish it wasn't there. Wish he didn't have those people coming to know Christ. Wish his church wasn't growing because his own church isn't. This envy, this desire for to put myself forward. And this envy and selfish ambition could be connected so often to our own fears and the pain that we've suffered in our lives. So that uh, the way we respond to people is a defense mechanism. I I think my worst moments with my wife, Kay, are because of this very thing. I think my worst moments in our marriage have been not being able to admit at a given point that I was wrong, what I said was wrong, or I made a mistake, or what, and, and I couldn't face it. And I responded then with anger, responded maybe to put her down, to try to escape unscathed. And what's so ridiculous about that is how weak and sniveling and pathetic that is. And all the while, there's this selfish ambition to build my reputation, even if I have to hurt my wife. Even if I have to neglect her feelings in a particular argument. Because I'm all about myself. And at the root of that, here's the sad and weird thing. At the root of that is my fear of being exposed. And so often it's because we've been hurt that we can't get into discussions with a level head. Because of pain we've experienced, we see any kind of disagreement or other ideas as a threat to our integrity. And so we respond to gather together our territory and protect our turf. And some of the most angry people are some of the most fearful people. But however it comes about, it has this idea of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And he says, of course, in verse 15, this isn't the wisdom that comes from God. He says it's earthly. That means it's earthbound. He uses the word unspiritual. This is the same word used in 1 Corinthians 2.14 where he says the natural man cannot understand the things of God. So it's the idea of that which comes from those who have no connection with God. That's not saying that every person who does this, but if this is the way you live, uh, it has implications and it looks like those who don't even know God. And then he calls it demonic. And probably this doesn't mean that its source is demonic. It means it's like the kind of wisdom the demons have. You know, in the former chapter, he said, yeah, you have faith. Well, also the demons have faith. They believe that there is a God. They even tremble that there is a God. So just believing, saying, oh, I believe there's a God. 
That's gotten you to the level of the demons. And he says, this kind of, quote, wisdom, and and if you could uh, use his intention, you'd put that in quotes. This is not the wisdom. This kind of wisdom is earthly, unspiritual. It's like the demons. They're shrewd. They're cunning. They're manipulative. They have brilliant minds. They have all kinds of knowledge that we don't have. But they don't have wisdom. There's no grace. There's no love. There's no kindness in their heart. They have knowledge with which they seek to abuse and hurt. This, When we fall into this, when the argument becomes more important than the person and we fail to care and tenderly love one another in disagreement, in conflict, then we are like the demons, he says, when we do, when we do that. And then he, he completes this uh, treatment of it by repeating the word jealousy and selfish ambition from verse 14. So where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there's going to be disorder in every vile practice. Everything in the world will happen. And certainly in the history of the church of Jesus Christ, it has. This is no understatement as to what has happened in the history of the church of Jesus Christ, naming the name of Christ, uh, where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, where people are more concerned about where their place is and where they're getting to than they do to uplift and lay themselves out for and serve others. Then in verse 17, he begins to describe what true wisdom is, the wisdom from above. So after this call in verse uh, 13, uh, who is wise? Here it is, it's goodness and, and humility. He contrasts that with that which is not from above, and now he goes to that which is from above. And interestingly, he he makes a distinction here. It's first pure. First pure. This brings to mind what the Old Testament teaches about wisdom. In Proverbs and Psalm 111 and other places, uh, the fear of the Lord is wisdom. Proverbs 1.7. It's the whole basis of every proverb, really. The the whole of the wisdom of the Proverbs, the whole of life, and all of its many details that is spelled out in Proverbs, has this as its core. Here's the first step, and unless you take this step, unless you enter into this, there is no wisdom. It's the fear of God. And that's the same thing here as saying it's first pure. That is, in our giving ourselves to God and our belonging to God and our direction toward God. That's where wisdom begins. That God is the absolute centerpiece of my life. He's the hunger and thirst of my life. He's the whole goal and purpose of my life. He has my affections. He has my all. He has my worship. He has my honor. He has my obedience. The fear of the Lord. And this fear means many things. It means to be gripped with the sovereignty of God, to be gripped with the sovereign prerogative of God. 
to realize how great He is and how good He is, that His will is good, His ways are always good, to be in awe of His wisdom and in awe of His power, and in that astonishment to give myself relentlessly to Him. There's the beginning of wisdom. That's so different than having a lot of facts about God. It's a heart-life response to the glory and goodness of God. And part of purity and the fear of God is knowing I'm dependent upon this God. I can't keep myself alive for a minute. I owe Him everything that I am, everything that I have, everything I've done or can do, every relationship and opportunity I have. It's from Him. Praise be His name that He has done all He has done and He continues to do it for me. And then on top of that, to realize the greatness of my sin against Him how by nature I refused Him and rejected Him and denied Him and despised Him and ignored Him and disregarded Him and disobeyed Him and and mocked Him. I did all of these things in my sin. And then, while I was in that condition, Jesus dies for me. And while I'm in that condition, I come to Him in all of my helplessness and He declares me an ungodly person Righteous and acceptable that I have his favor forever. What? What? Why? Why would there was nothing in me to elicit that? Nothing in me that deserved it. It was pure love and mercy poured out for me, seeking me, drawing me, transforming me, embracing me, and then rejoicing to do me good forever. And that's why Psalm 130, verse 4 says, There's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. See, that's when we really are in awe of this God. That's when wisdom is born in our hearts. The awe of a God who would do this for me in, in His Son, Jesus Christ. Awe of this God of power, this God of creation, this God of redemption. The wisdom from above is first pure. Has this dedication to God. Has this respect and honor for God. How, why else would it be important, as he has just got through talking about, that we treat others who are in the image of God with respect and honor? Well, if I'm not in awe of God, I won't be in awe of those who are in His image. If I'm not humble and broken and amazed at this God... I'm not going to treat others sacrificially. So the beginning of this wisdom, the beginning of this this goodness and this humility is is purity, is the fear of God. I think this is how we could understand as a kind of inclusion or or counterpart the last two words uh, of this verse when he says impartial and sincere. Now, uh, the word... These words both start with an A, which is in our in English is an un, like unflinching or unsavory, right? The the A word takes that, um, and they have a, a similar rhythm. So he he groups them together, but the and it's hard to figure out exactly what he means by this first one, impartial, because he's used it twice. It's the only time this word actually occurs in the New Testament, but he's used it twice thus far in James without the un, okay? 
So, in one place, in chapter 2, he says, uh, you've made distinctions among yourselves. You've, you've shown partiality among yourselves. That's why this translation in the ESV is, you're impartial. Okay, but I would take it with the New American Standard, the phrase unwavering, because the word is also used in chapter 1, uh, verse 6, where he says, Ask in faith with no doubting, no wavering. Uh, I think this fits better with the context. Also, Paul, uh, James in that passage in chapter 1 says that in verse 18, he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And that's the same word as in verse 16, that there will be disorder. Everything will be in, unstable. So I think that's the, the train of thought. Now, why is that important? Uh, that unwavering in our faith and sincere in our faith, you see. The word literally is unhypocritical. That I truly from the heart believe and I'm unwavering in my belief and my loyalty to God and my allegiance to Him. It's part of that purity. It's part of that fear of God. And it's really true that we won't even want the lost to come to know God unless we have this honor of God. It is our worship of Him, our adoration and love of Him that drives even our love for other people. One cannot exist without the other. And so, at first, there must be this purity. And then he groups these next three words together. They all start with the letter E in the original. Peaceable, gentle, Open to reason. So that our lives are marked by promoting peace. As he says in verse 18, there's this harvest of righteousness, this harvest that is righteousness. Righteousness prevails when those are making peace, creating peace where there is no peace. And so wisdom always seeks to bring about reconciliation to bring about uh, agreement and to bring about love and restored relationship. The word gentle is ties in with what he says above in verse 13, uh, with meekness of wisdom or humble wisdom. And these are the same kinds of things uh, described in the Old Testament that have to do with wisdom. Uh, it's, it's interesting in Proverbs 8, when it, and I, I take the fear of the Lord as a synonym for wisdom, which it is in Proverbs. But he says, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. That's wisdom, you see. Wisdom is to hate pride and arrogance and perverted speech. Proverbs 14, 16 says, One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil. A fool is reckless and careless. So wisdom keeps from evil. And then interesting in Proverbs 12, 18, there's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So the, a lack of wisdom will mean I'm hurting like a sword others with my tongue either in backbiting or gossip or slander or lies or angry words, whatever it is. But a wise person, it's not just that he knows something. 
He brings healing with his tongue. That's the thing to keep associating. Wisdom is goodness. Wisdom is love. Wisdom, wise man brings healing. He's not just know something. He doesn't just have understanding, bare understanding. He loves people. That's the essence of wisdom. Walking in the fear of God. And so in Proverbs 15, the first two verses, it says, A soft answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge. So what he's talking about is the tongue of the wise. A wise person is not harsh in his words. A wise person turns away wrath with soft answers. He brings healing. And then the the association of wisdom and humility as he says in Proverbs eleven two, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Pride is the opposite of wisdom. And we could multiply passages like that in Proverbs that compare wisdom and uh, humility. But you have this word too here that says uh, that they will be open to reason. It doesn't mean that, it means that when I have an opinion, I'll be open to listen to other opinions, really hear them out, really humble myself and ask if my opinion is right or not. And especially on small things. We know of a church that part of its greatest conflict occurred when they repainted the foyer. That was it. And the reason is that you don't have a clear biblical principle, you know, that it's going to be pink or purple or yellow or green, you know. You can't point to chapter and verse. It's just your desire, your thought versus somebody else's desire, somebody else's opinion. And there was the grounds for conflict. Amazing that the smaller things get sometimes, the bigger the conflict can occur. Because then it reveals that I'm all about myself and my opinion. And my opinion is the most important thing. And so in Proverbs, uh, it it talks about these things, how uh, people who uh, are are wise, it says in Proverbs 10.8, they receive commandments but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 13, 1, a wise son hears his father's instruction, father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. On and on. And so there's, there's, there's this gentleness, this uh, willingness to listen and, and the idea of gentle is found so often in, in Scripture. Uh, it says in Galatians 6 that if a brother is caught in transgression, restore him, yet with a spirit of gentleness. And even when you're correcting opponents, he says, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, do it with gentleness. Even with somebody standing and opposing the truth of God, you still care for that person. You still have mercy and kindness toward them. You still serve them as one made in the image of God. 
Your argument, even though you may think I'm zealous for the truth, I've got to blow them away because what they said is so wrong. And do you think that you and I love the truth more than Paul? Yet Paul says, with gentleness, don't be quarrelsome. Be kind to everyone, he says. And in Titus, it's the same thing. Speak evil to no one. Be ready for every good work, all goodness. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. Uses both words that are found here in James. Paul does there. And if, if you make a defense for anyone asks you, Peter says, do it with gentleness. <laughs> it's a constant chorus. Constant chorus in Scripture of the attitude, the, the sense of humility and brokenness and other-centeredness that we're to have. As Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, I urge you to walk in a matter, manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. What is that calling? What has God called us to? He says, with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And this elders especially are told, said that you, you pick men who are not violent, but that are gentle, that are quarrelsome, that are not quarrelsome. Uh, Oh, we get the exception, right? We, uh, well, as we come to the table, uh, is a certainly we do this anyway, but especially important that we talk about Christ, who Himself claimed to be the one who is gentle. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The interesting thing to me about that passage is that as we take his yoke, as we put ourselves under this yoke of Christ, it's a yoke of humility and meekness. And there's no other yoke that you can put yourself with and this yoke that's specific and this is how you will find rest for your soul this is how you will flourish as a human being this is how you will come to know peace in its richest way as you take upon yourself this gentleness of spending yourself for others please visit our not promoting your own agenda and living to protect yourself and to subscribe to this podcast. In that you will find Our rest for your souls. And it's the same Fort thing that Paul calls us to in Philippians 2. Do nothing from rivalry. It's the same word here, selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Don't only look out for your own interests, but for the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was Chase my fears away. Won't you chase my Even God the Son did not have a mind for himself, but he had a mind for us. And he humbled himself, Paul says there, even to the point of dying on the cross in order to rescue us. Have that mind in yourself. And I love how the ESV puts it. Have this mind 
among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus saves us. He rescues us from ourselves. Paul says that, doesn't he, in 2 Corinthians 5, that we may no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised for us. I can be released from this prison of self. I can be set free to spend myself for others and to have the wisdom from above, which is goodness and humility, which bears these marks, which he goes on to say there, has mercy and abundant fruit. Wisdom shows mercy. May God grant it. May you come to know this Christ and trust this Christ who has died for sinners and be set free by this Christ who loves you. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you give us a new wisdom, a new love. Lord, a a love as Paul describes it in Corinthians, love that is patient and kind, that does not envy, does not boast, is not arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way, is not irritable or resentful. Oh, Lord, we confess to you in how many ways we do not walk in love and we do not show your wisdom. Oh, Lord, draw us ever after yourself. You've drawn us a thousand times as we've sung it. Lord, draw us yet again. Draw us and draw us and draw us to make us more and more like our humble Savior who gave himself so freely to save those who were so hateful against him. Oh, Lord, set us free. Set us free so that we will not be like the demons but that we will be like Jesus Christ. We trust you, O Lord, alone. Amen.